A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. Quick note, we have shows coming up in Boston, Brunswick, Maine, and London, and a special event in the Bay Area of stories about cancer. StoryCollider.org for more information. This week's story is from Annalise Kaler. The story was recorded in March 2014 at the New American Shakespeare Tavern in Atlanta, Georgia, as part of the Atlanta Science Festival. It was an unseasonably warm day in Minneapolis, and it was difficult to ignore the effect that it was having on the entire city. As I walked to my appointment, the cars were whizzing by, their windows rolled down, and their drivers rocking out to whatever bad pop happened to be on the radio. The kids in the schoolyard were laughing, playing without their jackets on for the first time in months, and the birds over my head were going absolutely crazy with song. About an hour or so later, I came out of my appointment, and the cars are still whizzing, and the birds are singing, and there's a new batch of kids playing on the playground, but I had cancer. When you're told that you have cancer, you sort of idle in disbelief. I didn't immediately think I was going to die. I didn't start mentally willing away my most precious possessions. I didn't even cry. Instead, I just looked at the doctor who was talking at me, And I didn't hear a voice of authority that was presenting me with a roadmap out of this mess. I just heard one of those adults in a Charlie Brown episode with little cancer descriptors kind of in between wah, 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 ovarian, wah, wah, treatment, wah, 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 wah. And it didn't really hit me because like so many people who walk into an appointment where they know they might learn they have cancer, I didn't think it was going to happen to me. And like so many people walking out of an appointment where they knew they might learn they have cancer, it had happened to me. I had no idea what was coming next, so I walked back to Doris, my 1963 Dodge Dart GT, got back in the car, and I drove home. The entire drive home was the same as it was before I had cancer, but it looked entirely different. My house was the same, too. Only the mailman had been by early that day, and I walked in on my boyfriend of two years, fucking my best friend in our bedroom. Now, it's not uncommon for me to accomplish a lot before lunchtime, but that day, that day was unprecedented. I sort of stood there watching them, and in hindsight, I wish I could have unleashed some sort of Oscar-worthy performance of anger, but I just didn't have it in me. A half an hour earlier, I had been told that my life would be forever linked to cancer, that from that day forward, I would be either survivor or victim. So as I stood there watching them for a while, he was making his weird sex face, and she was the absolute perfect picture of a wasp. All I could think about was not the fact that the second leading cause of death had invaded my body, but that maybe my thighs were too large, or my breasts were too small, or somehow I was just not good enough. I stood there for a while watching them, 
And then I casually interrupted them, cast aside their pitiful attempts at saving face, packed a couple of bags, and for all intents and purposes, I never looked back. My dad and my stepmom were going camping. My sister was away at college. My brother was either on his third round of rehab or his fourth relapse, and my mom forgot no longer in a relationship and without a best friend. And since Chuck Norris had yet to cry any of those famous cancer-curing tears, I boarded a bus and I headed for my first day of chemo alone. It's not how the American Cancer Society recommends you do it. Now, if you look at their brochures, you see happy little families holding your hands and people supporting you throughout the ordeal. But by contrast, my family is the poster family for dysfunction. My father had taught me at a very young age that asking for help comes with an emotional price tag, so I learned early on that there are some things for which you never pay full price. For similar reasons, I didn't bother to tell any of my extended family that I had been diagnosed either. The uncomfortable thought of that many Garrison Keeler Lutherans descending upon me with hot dish and affection was about to make me more nauseous than the chemo itself. So like many things up until that point in my life, I decided it was just better that I went at it alone. Now the room where you have chemo isn't private. There are a lot of people having treatment with you at the same time. But it's as comfortable as a hospital room can be. There's heated recliners, comfortable lighting, cozy blankets, laptops to use. And though I was alone that day, I wasn't by myself in the room. There were other people having ice-cold poison pumped through their veins, too. I had just started getting used to the feeling of the IV dripping and the cold reaching up through my shoulder and into my neck and down into my body, and I covered myself with a blanket when a little boy walked into the room. He walked around and he greeted all the other patients. Nancy and James got high fives. Roland got a fancy little handshake. To the little boy, these people in the room with him were his friends, but to me, they were my odds. I'm no mathematician, but I looked around at the numbers and I knew exactly what the truth was, and that was that not all of us were getting out alive. When he got around to me, he said, Hi, I'm Phoenix, like the bird. Hello, Phoenix, like the bird. I'm Annalise. This is spirit, he said, thrushing a large stuffed animal in my face. Is this your first time here? I nodded, and he gave me his stuffed animal and told me that when my tummy started to hurt, I could just squeeze spirit real hard, which I did. I looked over at his mother, and she smiled at me with the sort of hardened smile of a woman who was holding it together for the sake of her son. The rest of the four-hour session went on, Phoenix babbling away, and the rest of us temporarily forgetting our potentially fatal reality for a while. For my next chemo session, I gathered up a stack of children's books from the library, and I asked his mother, Janae, if I could read to Phoenix while we were sometimes sharing our chemo sessions together. She loved the idea and took advantage of the respite. She was my age at the time, both 24, like me, doing it mostly alone. Oftentimes, she would come to chemo after working a double shift overnight 
and then have to sit there and watch her five-year-old son fight for his life. How she was still standing was beyond me. See, the thing about cancer is that it just wants to be alive like the rest of us, only it's willing to fight you for it, and we take life as if it's a given. Cancer attacks you from all angles, going after your mind immediately after it has your body subdued. Oh, you don't feel sick until you try to fight it. And then, then it unleashes the element of surprise. You're standing there brushing your teeth, pulling your pigtails out for the night, only they don't come out like they used to anymore, and you're left holding one pigtail in each hand. Cancer's derisive laugh echoing in your ears. I thought I was ready for my Apollo. Cut me, Mick, cut me. I shaved what was left of my head, but I didn't feel empowered like so many women told me I would. The act simply did not make me own my cancer. So I called Janae. I cried and she listened, her silence proving to be far more powerful than any words she could have offered me. Sometimes when I'd had a long day and I was too tired for the pity of eyes, the pity eyes on the roads of public transportation, a weary Janae would bring me home. When she had had a long day at work, I would sit and read stories to Phoenix over the phone so she could take advantage of an hour-long hot bath and restore herself. One day I got into chemo and Phoenix wasn't there. I absolutely panicked. For months, these people had been my new family. They had taught me that family is who you choose it to be. These were no longer my odds. These were mechanics and factory workers and waitresses and grandmothers. These were people. A few minutes later, Janae came down, and she told me that the night before, Phoenix had been admitted with an infection, and frankly, it wasn't looking so good. I finished my session, lugged my library books up to his floor, and we spent the afternoon with the boxcar children and the Smurfs while, he, while his mother could run some of her errands. After she returned, it wasn't long until the counseling staff stopped by to help her shift her expectations. For the next few weeks, I stayed close by. While Phoenix slept, I helped Janae shop for a casket for her five-year-old son. I wrote his obituary, and I scattered it with quotes from Spirit of the Cimarron, his favorite movie. When we buried Phoenix and Spirit a week and a half later, I came to see not life not as a singular entity, but as a beautiful method of moments. A child's laugh, a bird's song, someone rocking out with reckless abandon to the likes of Creed. Together, these things let our minds explore the freedom that makes us live not for what we have, nor what we cherish, nor what we think we need, but in anticipation of what could be. For months, these strangers had stepped in where my family and so-called friends had, stared, had dared not to tread. 
a week and a half after we buried them and I walked back into the chemo room looking around at the people and the odds, I made a determined decision. My life needed to be less affected by pain and more infected by beauty. See, the thing about people is that we don't measure the impact that they have on our lives when they're here, when they're with us. It's how we feel when they're gone, even if just for a few days. So I wrapped my heart in a cast, and I signed it myself. Let's prove them wrong. Thank you. That was Annalise Kayla. Hailing from the Northwoods of Wisconsin, Annalise planned to live in an RV and travel around the country when she made a pit stop in Atlanta and decided it was home. By day, Annalise is one of the country's foremost authorities on social media, helping companies concoct ways for you to loathe Facebook even more. By night, she's an antisocial pilot who loves beer, bourbon, and Euro-style strategy board games. Annalise is a Wright Club champion and a Moth Story Slam champion who can also be heard at Naked City, Carapace, The Iceberg, and Seen Missing. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. Also, we depend on listeners like you for our support. If you love the podcast, please consider donating at storycollider.org slash donate. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the New American Shakespeare Tavern for hosting the show, to the Atlanta Science Festival for being amazing partners, and to Facebook for helping me continue my push to get you to follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.